0: Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast and we're going to be looking at the ninth and penultimate story of season three, The Savages by Ian Stewart-Black. No Paul this time. We're joined once again by illustrator, 3D modeler, Doctor Who magazine contributor and co-creator of The Phenomenon. That is Dalek6388, Gavin Rymill, and also the amazing Doctor Who researcher, Doctor Who magazine writer and all-round superbrain, Rhys Williams. Hello, men.
1: Hello. Hello. Good to be back. Happy St. Bartholomew's Day to you, Tim. What were you up to last night?
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, I, w- I was out uh, roaming the streets, killing Protestants. I wasn't. <laughs> you threw me a curveball there, which I wasn't expecting. <laughs>
1: Sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what have you been up to, Geoff?
1: What have I been up to? I have been deep into researching the streets of London, specifically the clink, for... Termination Army episode, which might be out. Yes, it should be out before this podcast. So, oh, yeah. Talons of Wang Chiang location mysteries. I've
0: seen a preview version on your Patreon, and I think it's one of my favorite videos in the making. So, I can't wait to see the finished product. Thank you. Reese, how are you doing? What have you been up to?
2: I'm all right. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of thinking about. And talking about and studying the two Peter Cushing movies recently, Ah. and it's been rather nice seeing everyone basking in the in the collective love for them.
0: Were the Peter Cushing films part of your upbringing, as it were? The same as they were for me and Gav?
2: Yeah, I had the I had the VHS with which had both of them on, so I watched that an awful lot. But I hadn't seen them for years, uh, so I've been enjoying getting back in touch with them. And I I thought they were just this kind of weird curio uh, in terms of fandom's uh, Mm. appreciation for them, but it seems actually they are
0: enjoyed and embraced. They are deeply loved, I think. Mm. When I was young, in the 80s, in my very early years, in the early 80s, waiting for those to come on TV was one of the highlights. The Dalek movies, Clash of the Titans, that sort of thing. Jason the Argonauts—they were the real highlights. Were on the TV, and Rhys, congratulations on the latest Doctor Who magazine, the Abominable Snowman. It was a really riveting read. That issue was tailor-made for me, I think, because you had your brilliant Abominable Snowman piece, and then there was the piece on Donald Cotton yeah. as well, and then tons of Bernard Cribbins stuff. It was—it was really great. So congratulations.
1: Thank you. Very good issue. Well done.
0: And we're here to talk about The Savages. So The Savages was certainly one of the last stories that I came to in my appreciation of the black and white era. Gav, how about you?
1: I first saw a reconstruction of this on video in either 1998 or 99, in the days when you had to send off a blank VHS in the post. Oh, The version I got was not loose cannon i can't remember who the other people were at the time Mm. those recons were next to unwatchable no disrespect to the people but the tele snaps were absolutely impossible to make out the audio was so muffled you couldn't hear half the dialogue um so i imagine like most people the impression that i was left with was somewhat murky to say the least so although i have dabbled in the savages for a long time it's only really in the last probably 5 years or so mainly thanks to loose cannon that i've uh, properly discovered this story definitely w- w- worth another look sure and reese did you did you come across it in
0: story order or well i would have seen the clips on lost in time
2: Uh, And Then there was a big gap for me in terms of watching the classic series, in terms of watching the original series, but then I, I know I picked up one of the narrated audio box sets, the one that had the savages in it, but I don't have any real strong memories associated with it. It's a story that, for me, almost has a perception filter over it, where I could watch it and enjoy it and think, yeah, this is great, and then as soon as there's any distance from having experienced it, I forget all the reasons why
0: I was enjoying it. Well, it's a funny thing, and perception filter is an excellent way of describing it. This is perhaps the least tangible, least known, least celebrated missing story. This and the smugglers mm. seem both to, to share that vibe, this, this late Hartnell period. I did a Twitter poll and it said, be honest, please. Do you feel familiar with the savages as you might with other missing stories? Or is it a bit intangible? And there was a good response. I had 373 participants. 22.5% had never seen it. 41% said it's slippery. You know, intangible. Intangible leaving 36.5% saying it's fine. Now, this seem, I'll do the same for the smugglers, but this seems to be a fairly consistent idea that, that is around about the savages. And, you know, in preparing for this, I've read the usual volumes. I've read Lord Pixley. I've read Shearman and Haydock, And I've been looking at some old fanzines and things. And nobody has much <laughs> to say about it. They all pick off... The same three or four things which we'll get to. Why is
1: this? I think there's a few things that might account for it. I think one of its big problems is that the imagery of its settings probably doesn't excite people very much. Mm. Um, Although the set design of The Elder City is very good, as we'll come on to. The rest of the story, you've got one, a quarry, two, a studio jungle, And three, some caves. Hmm. So I suspect that the impression that people have is perhaps a little mundane. I could be wrong, and this is maybe a bit of a wacky theory, but I wonder if the Dominators has a bit to blame. (laughs) Um, You've got the big shoulder pads and the bloke who looks like Ronald Allen. (laughs) They're both about a technocratic elite subjugating primitives, both set on an island. So maybe people think with the Dominators, they've seen it all before, but at least the Dominators has got some fun robots. So perhaps there's some kind of conceptual overlap and they sort of put it to one side.
0: No monsters in this, are
1: there? No monsters. Mm. I think that is the big thing, is that the story's defining trait is its concept. And you can't really summarize a concept uh, very neatly without just running through the entire plot. Uh, There's no particularly celebrated lines of dialogue, nor any infamously bad ones. Um so for all its strengths, and I think it does have strengths, it never sparkles, but it, it never becomes so dreadful that people can have a jolly good laugh and and post clips. Not that there <laughs> are really clips. Mm. It's one of Doctor Who's sort of most standard science fiction stories. Normally with Doctor Who there's a there's a twist or an uncanny angle. Or like you say a monster, you know, if mm. they do if they do 1984 they throw giant crabs in, or if they rip off the Abominable Snowmen, they make the Yeti's robots. And there's none of that in this. It's it's pretty much a dead, straight science fiction screenplay, mm. which, um, whether it succeeds or fails, normally Doctor Who does something a bit more wacky. Yeah. And this is um, perhaps a little bit sensible. And so it just kind of ebbs away in people's memories. I think
2: some of the more radical elements of the story have been rendered mundane by the passage of time and the ongoing production of the series. We say, oh, it's a boring old quarry, but it's the first quarry. It's the first time a quarry is used as an alien landscape in Doctor Who. And when was the last time they had on-location filming? Well, I was thinking about this, actually, and the... There's more than I thought because there's a little bit at the end of the massacre and there's some in the myth makers. Ah. But really, Dalek Invasion of Earth is the only meaty location work in the series up until this point. And from here on in, you've basically got location work in every story. Interesting. It's rare that we don't get location work from this point on. And the other thing that, that we now take for granted is... The Doctor having foreknowledge of his destination, being familiar with the place he's arrived at, and his reputation preceding him, as I'm sure we'll get onto more a bit later.
0: We will. Yeah, because he kind of has foreknowledge, but I'll get onto that towards the character section. I think that's quite fun. So, oh, Gav, I will take issue with one thing you said. You said it never sparkles. I think there's one extremely sparkly bit as well which I really enjoyed, which is it the face paint,
3: <laughs> No.
0: <laughs> which made the hairs on my arms stand up. So we'll get to that. So a bit about the background then. It's The end of an era and the beginning of a new one in that. This is the last story commissioned by Wiles and Tosh. They're no longer the credited producer and script editor. So this is the very last story that they teed up. So we are now at the beginning of the era of Innes Lloyd and Jerry Davis. And my instinct is that this change heralds a shift. From the wants to tell sort of immersive character driven dramas to well, science fiction more on that next time obviously but sort of sci-fi ripping yarns and perhaps aimed at a younger audience. Perhaps after the smugglers, eh? (laughs) We have the end of episodic titles. Any thoughts on this?
1: It would be interesting to know whether it ever had any proposed episodic story titles because uh John Wiles and Tosh as you said requested the storyline before Christmas 65 and it's not impossible that that was delivered with episode titles and then they went over sort of over the new year into January didn't they mm. and then the outline was delivered on the 19th of January so i think that outline might well have had episode titles and then the drafts were delivered the following week When did the Innes Lloyd start making the kind of decision that would strip away those those last vestiges? Yeah. Do you have
0: any episode titles in mind, Gav, if you were writing it?
1: Uh, The Cave of Fear. (laughs) I did consider uh, spending some time trying to think think up some, and then I thought, what am I doing with my life?
0: He's not going to ask me this. Yeah, so Innes Lloyd apparently changed it to serial titles, apparently to help the viewer understand the length of the story. Mm. Was it confusing before? I rather lament the loss of the episodic
2: titles. I quite like them, but I think that's only because they were discontinued and they are this kind of quirk curio of the show's early years. But I think that, in terms of a change, they're more emblematic of the Lloyd Davis era than having any particular strong impact on the storytelling because there are many Hartnell serials which don't run into one another. There are many Troughton Mm. serials which do run into one another. And it's only sort of into the 70s that they really stopped doing that. And that's because the show was no longer a serial which ran throughout the year. It's almost one of those kind of doing something in order to be seen to be doing something kind of changes.
1: Yeah. How do you how do you feel about the return of episodic titles in in the 21st century? It's boring now. <laughs> 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 Stories now don't have an overall title. They have episodic titles, but no overall. So you've got to refer to things as The Empty yeah. Child slash The Doctor Dances. Yeah, I would only like it if there was a, a
2: confusing paper trail Which we had to decipher in order to discover what was the true
0: title. We should start referring to Dalek's Master Plan by its 12 (laughs) episode titles separated by a slash. I think Empty Child is called Gas Mask Cutaway. (laughs) Now, as reviewers, we have a treat. Because we have the return of Telesnaps. Well done, Innes Lloyd. Good man. Thank the Lord, Cura. (laughs) So we do have a good visual record, and we also have a nice, clean, Graham Strong recording as well. The changes keep ringing. We have a major casting change, which we'll get to, the departure of Stephen. It's also the last proper adventure for Dodo. What do you mean by that? Well, it's a while since I've watched The War Machines, but my memory seems to be that she doesn't have a major part to play in it. (laughs) Especially in parts three and four. Um, We have a debut for one Ian Stewart Black, who, like they all do, has several TV credits prior. The Invisible Man, Francis Drake, Danger Man. And the story goes, he was wandering by the Doctor Who production office while working on something else at the BBC, and he popped in and offered his services to secure... (laughs) the respect of his family um, or his kids. And he presented the idea of a a high-functioning society that worked by exploiting the life force of other humans. And this appealed to Tosh and Wiles. That doesn't surprise me. Uh, it's a sort of gritty theme that they, they'd probably like to have done. But as Gav said, on, uh, at this point, they were on their way out. So the project was taken over by Jerry Davis and it's Lloyd at an early stage. So they did most of the development.
1: It would be very interesting to know how much John Wiles shaped this before it was handed off. Because... I mean, he does seem to like dabbling in his colonial storylines, having done the arc, and I'll come on to Mm. why that might be in a bit. But um, it does sound like that wasn't really the onus when he pitched his story. So at what point did it become uh, the questionable allegory that it ended up as? Mm. It it occurred to me that uh, Ian Stewart Black, uh, it was unprecedented at this point that a writer would have two consecutive stories. And it wouldn't happen again for 11 years until Chris Boucher did Robots of Death and Face of Evil. And just going back to what you said about um, <laughs> comparing and contrasting Stephen and Dodo, I mean, what a, what a contrast we'll come on to. But for Ian Stuart Black to have done two stories in a row <laughs> and dealt with these <laughs> companion departures somewhat differently, yeah. very interesting.
0: Well, we'll get onto it next time at what point Ian Stuart Black took over from uh, Kit Pedler. And also, I think Ian Stuart Black is either by luck or by his own force, his own writing, quite an important writer because he's writing this sort of betwixt and between end of an era, start of an era story. And then the next story he ends up taking over is a seminal story isn't it the war machines and then after that he does shortly after that he does the macro terror which again is a seminal story and that it is sort of a blueprint for season five the monster era i think um yeah either by luck or off his own back he is an important writer in uh, doctor who history
1: my understanding is that he was uh, he was going to another meeting and he burst in and he said, I would like to uh, shape the future of Doctor Who by forging military uh, invasion-based <laughs> stories and the base under siege for uh, future reference. These are my ideas. What do you think? <laughs>
0: in the director's chair, we have once again Christopher Barry. I think this is his first missing story, isn't it? So he's quite well represented in the archive before that. The story is that he felt by this point that Doctor Who had gone off the boil a little bit. Any thoughts on Christopher Barry?
1: His surviving stuff is very good, very competent. He seems to get in good for close-ups and character stuff. Mm. Um, The rescue's very good in that respect. I'm not a huge fan of the writing in the Romans, but the regulars are all very engaging. The camera work's interesting. The Savages would be his only 60s story with any location work, wouldn't it? But I think his directing in The Mutants is very underappreciated, especially the film sequences. I think they've, they've got a real punch to them. Robot maybe doesn't get some of the technical stuff right, but again, it's got a sort of humanity to it, really good character stuff. Hmm. The telesnaps show very nice framing of, of shots, specifically on the film work. Uh, both on location and pre-filming, I was struck by um, there's a really nice shot when Stephen reflects the light gun back at mm. and There's a great depth of field over his shoulder. Mm. And there's great use of some of the ca- uh, some of the. Uh, there's a great use of the crane camera in some of the cave shots. Mm. So some visually interesting stuff, I think. Mm. He's
2: more than just a safe pair of hands, isn't he, Christopher Barry? Mm. He he gets it done and he gets it done well. I would say that I struggle to identify a particular style of his. You know, if if we're talking about directors like Camfield or Ferguson, they've got mm. a, a particular flair that you can kind of recognise. Whereas with Barry, he seems a bit more straight laced to me. Mm. But that said, I know the um, I think John Pertwee and Katie Manning all they all used to call him the Mad Monk. <laughs> During yeah, the Demons. Sure. Yeah. So there must be he must have some sort of impish quality that perhaps I haven't quite noticed. And there's actually a fascinating BBC internal training film, which is just about as close as you can get to a, a making-of of a 1960s Doctor Who story. It follows the production of a Zed Cars episode directed by Christopher Barry. And you see him uh, in all stages of the production... So you, there's some footage of him sitting at home, writing up his camera script and drawing, drawing things on the floor plan. And when he's in the rehearsal rooms, figuring out his camera moves, he is darting about the room, sort of holding his hand out in front of him as the lens, and sort of flitting between all the different cameras. And it's it's just magical to think that. At one point in 1966, he was doing that for every scene in The Savages. Christopher (laughs) Barry was there in a room, sort of sticking his hand in the actor's faces (laughs) and figuring things out. Uh, And there's also uh, footage of him in the gallery, and it shows you just how demanding a job it was to direct productions at that time. There is so much that he has to be on top of. And the fact that he does it so consistently well for so many years of Doctor Who, mm. uh, I think speaks
0: volumes. There's a there's a great photo as well, isn't there, from Power of the Daleks, where he's he's talking in an animated way to Patrick Tran mm. with his mouth wide yeah. open as if he's demonstrating how something should be. But it seems a shame with Christopher Barry, because when he's interviewed in later years, he's always slightly embarrassed and ashamed, or he protests, you know, that Mm. he he didn't want to be doing this crap, he wanted (laughs) to be doing high art. He's obviously a very proficient, professional man Mm. who perhaps played down the enthusiasm that at least he brought to a production, even though he might have been dying on the inside. (laughs) (laughs) As as
2: you see in the film, which I think would make excellent VAM on a future Blu-ray collection... (laughs) <laughs> hint, hint. Um, he's got photos from Power of the Daleks pinned up on his ah.
0: office wall. Is it Terry Scully? Fushum?
2: No, it's a different one. This one's in colour. There seem to be two behind-the-scenes Zed Cars productions. Uh, and David Baloney's in it as well. He's his PA on the production. Oh, how brilliant. And you see, you see him on location as well, and there are child
0: actors, and he's really you know, warm and pleasant and uh, charming. Well, David Maloney's not too shabby either, is he? So, you know, he obviously learnt from a, mm. a decent technical director. Fantastic. There's an unusual musical score for this story mm. in that it's a string quintet, quartet, and the music is by Raymond Jones, who had previously done The Romans. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the music? It's one of the few things that commentators go back to because it's (laughs) there, you can hear it.
1: I really like it. Mm. It adds a cinematic quality. Mm. It's frenetic and almost
2: overbearing at times, Mm. but I think it toes the line well. Yeah, it's forceful, melodramatic. I feel that sometimes it's really telling me
0: what it wants me to feel. It adds a new atmosphere, doesn't it? It adds a... Mm. a a sparse, barren atmosphere to the music, I think, and a vaguely threatening as well, an atmosphere of mm-hmm. threats a lot of the time. Almost mournful. Yeah. Uh, I did find sometimes I wanted a bit of melodramatic sort of orchestral music when, you know, like when Nanina's being chased through mm. the quarry. I felt that that needed a bit of oomph, and I did think there were times where I'd like, quite like some of the uh, electronic music of the era. But yeah, it's certainly a remarkable element of the story and has a great effect on the atmosphere i don't mean great it's very impactful on the atmosphere of the story isn't it Mm. Mm.
1: i'm interested to um have a look at some more of his stuff most doctor who was covered by a handful of names and there are one or two people that dip in and out but even people like Tristan Carey did more than ray jones Mm. so i had a little look at his background he'd worked on lots of anthology series including first night Story Parade, Thursday Theatre, Theatre 65, BBC Play of the Month. His most significant work was he'd done incidental music for thirteen episodes of an entirely missing science fiction series called Ministry of Research Center number three, which featured a young Oliver Reed. Wow. He composed the title music for the Woodhouse Playhouse, which ran from nineteen seventy-five to seventy-eight and did the score for two or three episodes. I think he composed a lot of music for the stock music libraries around that time as well. He did. It turns up in some weird places. It, his stock music is used in Ren and Stimpy, where they used a piece called Woodwind to Neutral, <laughs> and it's in SpongeBob SquarePants, where they used his tracks uh-huh. Primitive Force and The Jitters, which I found and listened to online. They all sound suspiciously similar to The Savages, to be honest. <laughs> I had a feeling he'd done some music for Red Dwarf. And weirdly, someone online said they'd heard some Red Dwarf music in Ren and Stimpy, so I don't know if that's true. It's 1975 film The Giant Spider Invasion uses his track called Cliffhanger. So yeah, so his stock music appears all over the place, but he was he was relatively well-known at the time, but never invited back to Doctor Who. A debut for a,
0: a designer as well,
1: Stuart Walker, and I think this is his only venture
0: into Doctor Who.
1: I really like... The design work, the production design in this, I think, is really interesting. All of the architecture of the Elder's City, he's designed it with this sort of triangular motif. Mm -hmm. So the control panels are pyramids. The back of the transference chambers, this sort of wedge shape series. The corridor walls have this interesting sawtooth pattern with the lighting coming from underneath. Really distinctive stuff. The outer wall of the city is patterned with uh, interlocking triangles. The door through which the, the process savages are ejected is a triangular shape. Uh, and it just gives you a sort of a feeling of a cohesive design, mm. like a, a society had a, a vision, if you like. Yeah. Uh, I particularly like the the transference chamber. It, it's built like sort of like an isolation cubicle. So you got the the futuristic hospital trolley gets wheeled in with the victim on, and then in the ceiling of the chamber, there's a square unit and this circular probe comes down and hovers over the midriff of the victim, and then as it as it does, the the tank fills with white gas. And it's all very exciting and visual, and, and that all feels really frustratingly lost.
2: Mm. I always felt a bit sorry for the poor actors who were getting shoved in this smoke-filled cubicle until I was looking at it and realised that it's only the sort of triangles on the outside that are filled with jets of
1: smoke, and the inside is actually kept nice and clean-aired. <laughs> I like the, the, the sort of nice glass framework. Mm that comes out of the top of that and goes overhead running to the three vats. I find it interesting. The the script says that the vats are initially filled with black liquid and Mm. then slowly as the process goes on, the liquid turns clear and then when the brain juice is transferred back to the elders, the same probe comes down and the the liquid goes black again. I'm absolutely fascinated to know how that was achieved. I
2: read somewhere that what they did was they had powerful lights behind the dark liquid and brought them up uh, on cue so that it appeared to brighten. But Ah. there were other incorrect things in the source in which I read that, so take with a pinch of salt. (laughs) Maybe
0: speculation. I had a note on this as well to ask you too. Um, mm. I kind of fancied there'd be some sort of simple chemical reaction they could do, you yeah. know, which makes a black liquid uh, colourless. But who knows? Like you were saying, with
2: um, coherent design choices, I noticed that underneath the, the transference cubicle there's a ten-pointed star design which is on Dodo's mirror. Oh, that's nice. Regarding the cubicle. It's quite interesting in the script, when it describes the in-transference equipment, that is when the vitality is being transferred to Jano, it's actually intended to be a different area in which he receives this transfusion. It's meant to be a sort of recess behind a panel in a wall, but I assume they probably decided to focus on the one set of equipment in order to save money and just for the, the logic of constructing a set and telling the story. But it, I think it, it does leave the the scenes where mm. Jane, who's just sitting in there with his silly helmet on. It looks a little bit
1: comical.
0: Yeah, yeah, he'd have to do some good acting to pull off a long shot
1: on his face, wouldn't he, to keep it interesting? <laughs> I made a, a mildly disparaging point about studio jungles and caves, but actually the studio jungle looks pretty good to me. Certainly more time meddler than The Chase. I like the fact it's designed on multiple levels, which really helps push away from the studio feel. Mm. The outer wall of the city looks amazing in that high shot against the uh, edge of the foliage. I hadn't realised looking at the telesnaps before, but
2: that's meant to be Dodo's point of view, isn't it? When she's looking out of the window. The high angle,
1: seeing Nanina come up to the entrance, that's what Dodo's seeing. Two wind machines were employed to gently blow the trees, which mm. I think is always a, a nice, simple way of selling the idea of a studio set being outdoors. Camfield does mm. that in in The Time Meddler, I think. So that's neat. Mm. The temple cave design. The telesnaps do not show it off at all, but the full set... Shrouded in darkness. Yeah, the full set has this lovely, ornate set of patterns carved into the rock, and the pillars... A hewn to echo the same triangular uh, designs of the city. Charles says that their ancestors were great artists, but their skills have all been sucked out of them. We infer that this is part of their religion. I think Dodo mm. says it's like a temple. The elders say that they, their religion, their faith, is the last thing that they, the elders haven't taken from them. Again, the cave's designed on a split level, which always gives the director something more interesting to work with.
0: Without getting into the themes, which we'll do shortly, but the triangular designs of the cave art—a subtle reminder that these are the same race of people. Yeah, yeah, and that one has been elevated and one has been depressed. That's interesting. They talk about yeah, their
2: ancestors being great artists, and art is one of the primary focuses hmm. of the city folk. They show off all their
1: sculptures in the uh, in the aisle the cave set is on a split level gives the director something more interesting to work with so there's a set of steps people come down gives them a more visually interesting entrance so lots of nice angles for chris barry to work with
2: and it's directly connected to the exterior isn't it the uh the cave set and you get uh views looking out from that cave entrance across the uh, the rocks and also views sort of looking down within the cave. And these are both coming from a camera that was hidden within the cave set on a camera platform. Camera five is sitting sort of to the left of the staircase and it's about six feet, eight feet elevated. So it can look out through the entrance on the high level and it can turn is around. Is the heron? No, the heron is like a baby oh. mole crane. It's just a pedestal camera. Yeah, and it can turn around 108 degrees and look down over
1: the temple set looking into the passageways. Another nice element of the production design. The light guns are are an interesting little feature.
0: Yeah, the light guns. I was thinking about those. Mm. So they're fire extinguishers, right? Mm. so when they're fired there you can hear the hiss and on some of the telesnaps you can see the plume of of smoke uh, emitting mm. from them now they also have a light which is the light element of the gun and then to to disguise the hissing of the the smoke they have a pleasing sci-fi gun effect yeah what i couldn't quite put my finger on was they seem to be used both as a weapon and as a means of dragging someone from A to B, controlling their movement. But the telesnaps don't show any effect at all in episode one, where Nanino is being moved from the quarry to the city. So were they just pretending? Do you know what I mean? Was <laughs> it just acting uh, with a sound effects, or what? How do you see all of that, those elements working?
2: I think that may be a, a limitation of filming on location in daylight is that the the lamp that they had in the prop was just not strong enough to, to shine any discernible light beam. But there's definitely light cast by the guns in the cave scenes. And we see, I think, what they've done because um, although some of it was done in the studio, about a minute's worth was done on film at Ealing, and I think what they've done is used a powerful spotlight to follow the beam sure. of the light.
1: My suspicion would be that they would have accomplished everything with a light, just a light, had that been effective enough, and that the CO2 component was, was a sort of practical addition to highlight the, um, the, the activation of the beam. They were built by Shorecraft uh, and they were still kicking around for a while because they were, uh, in, there was at least one of them in the Shorecraft uh, yard in 1967 when this cine film taken. But yes, as you say, they they shot CO2 in the end to probably accentuate the beam. Apparently Claire Jenkins wasn't too happy because she said it was extremely cold on her bare skin. But it's interesting that, that possibility of the ad- adjustment with the addition of the fire extinguisher Because in the script, they are just, they were originally just referred to as light guns. And then it's amended for them to be called the liquid light guns. Mm, I love that description. Yeah, uh, me too. It's a kind of weird, weird techno babble that I don't mind because it makes you feel like they've pioneered some bizarre technology Mm. that doesn't make any sense to our brains because how can light be liquid so i think that it's sort of there to reconcile the vapor and there's consistency in in that regard too in this in the sort of cohesion of this world building because the the liquid light seems to be part of the same sort of energy process used to extract people's vitality Mm. because you've got the the white mist that fills up the chamber also in episode three they deployed destructive vapors as protection against the light guns when Stephen goes on the offensive. So there's a nice bit of world building that they have this sort of ethereal fusion of light and liquid vapour that Mm. sort of powers their technology, both attack and defence, and uh, in their brain-sucking business. It feels like that sort of mystic David Whitaker style Mm. science. Throw some magnets and mercury in there to round it off. Yeah.
0: At the end of episode three, when uh, they're rescuing the doctor and they can't get out the corridor and there's this mm. billowing smoke yeah. cloud very slowly moving their way down. But they're also firing light guns. It's going to be a hell of a smoky affair. That
2: sequence, the, the corridor sequence, was pre-recorded, as in they, they recorded all of the corridor scenes at the start of episode four, after mm. they'd recorded episode three, while they had the corridor set up and all the smoke machinery. Uh, and they had an additional half hour's recording time for what amounted to about a minute and a half at the start of episode four. So that must have been some complicated
0: setups. Hmm. And just to wrap up on the design, I just want to mention the sound design, which especially the building pressure, the building noise when Hartnell is having his vitality sucked out. I've, I found mm. that enormously effective and I, I found some of the, the pew pew gun effects quite pleasing as well but, but it was very much in mm. contrast
1: to the music the laboratory sound effects would later be heard again in Spearhead from Space quite a mm. familiar little oh, gurgle yeah. to it <laughs>
0: Let's move on to the story, the themes, and so on. First of all, let's get this out of the way. One of the things that everyone always says about the savages is that it had the working title, The White Savages, and that this was changed uh, to avoid any implications of racism. Now, a related issue, are the elders in blackface...
1: According to Peter Thomas, who played Edal, his recollection was that they were painted golden mm. to uh, to show their elevated status. Sure. Uh, but he also said he thought it might have been silver. But <laughs> there is... N- I mean, gold does not come across on a black and white television. <laughs> there so is a reflective screen, quality to
0: some of the cheap... There is, them. yes, there is stuff, a sheen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
2: it's it's all of the, the city folk, isn't it? It's not just Jano, as is sometimes mentioned. It's
1: all of them. Yeah, there's quite a few of them. Yeah, and they they all they've all got dark bromsed. hair,
2: mm. jet black dyed hair or wigs.
1: Look, it's it's a story about <laughs> racism. So it's I mean it's an incongruous thing to uh, to to try to suggest that they're not, in some way, people of color. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you can't be in blackface if you're, if you're aliens. I mean, it's the, it's the thing with the Klingons, isn't it? I mean, the Klingons, are all, the Klingons in Star Trek are all in blackface, aren't they? But you can't, they can't be interpreted really as that because they're not trying to be African-Americans. They are aliens whose skin colour's black. So it's, it's something that they quite possibly would have done
2: in a different story, you know, if it was a story without this allegory about race. You know, I think I think in the Dominators they had gold skin applied.
0: Sure, but you know, I I always rather fancied that calling it the Savages was really a commentary that well, the people in furs aren't the savages. It's it's the people who are <laughs> mm. who are, are carrying out the beastly savage behaviour. They're the mm. savages. Ta da! Yeah. But Mm -hmm. knowing full well that it was in fact called The White Savages just completely Mm. takes that out the knees. So
1: what a crap title. They're referred to as The White Savages all the way through the script. Mm. Mm. Um, And that's blanked out in places, but not other places. I
0: I was reading one of the early fanzines and there was uh, an explanation of it being called The White Savages is merely a reflection of the pallid and drained nature of the savages (laughs) by virtue of of the draining process and i just thought that's a very naive <laughs> way of trying to cover up uh, mm. uh what is obviously a racially insensitive 1960s title yeah, I, yeah. I, I i
2: i saw that and i then assumed that that was based in something so i i looked through all the scripts to see where this where this was evidenced and of course it's not <laughs> but Ian Stewart Black in interviews, he always seemed to be very aggrieved about the dropping of white from the title. Uh, There was an interview in TV Zone where uh, he says, my first one I called Doctor Who and the White Savages and they called it the Savages. I think they took out white because it suggested something racial, <laughs> as, yeah. as Which though. Which otherwise uh, you would never, detect though it never detected. As though it didn't. Uh, what's he? What's he suggesting? Is he calling them cowards, or does he? Does he think it meant something else? I can to hear David
0: Brent in my ear saying, "You know, <laughs> not all savages are black."
1: <laughs> well, this is it, isn't it? So they completely cock it up because, as you said, the 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 these, the clever meaning that isn't really there is in is in the twist uh, about what defines savagery. And and so what you end up with is, it turns out that the black culture are the baddies after all. Uh, so it's just caught itself in a loop trying to be clever. Yeah. Uh, and the, the white guys turn out to be good, yay! Um, and obviously, surely it would have been more relevant if simplistic social commentary, if they'd just done, have you considered... That the black culture on this planet isn't necessarily the bad one, and the white people in charge yeah. might be the dodgy ones. Uh, maybe that wasn't exactly a hot take, even in the 60s. <laughs> uh, but that does make me do you know um, about John Wiles' upbringing? South Africa? Yes. When he was 20, he, w- he was born and raised in South Africa. When he was 23, apartheid was instigated, and he left for Britain the following year. There are, I think, apartheid references in the script. I think I don't mm. think it's a coincidence that they say they live in a free state. I think that's a reference mm. to the Orange Free State. Uh, the savages are said to live on a reserve. Uh, which uh. like the apartheid policy of, of homelands. Uh, and they use the they use the term subhuman which was in a lot of the rhetoric at the time, subjugating the native Africans. So that that was what made me ponder how much John Wiles's Potential interest in in the effects of colonialism might have influenced the commissioning. How interesting, or whether these are all subsequent oh. additions by I don't know Jerry Davis with <laughs> into a script that Ian Stewart Black had no idea <laughs> might be about racism.
0: How interesting with the John Wilde stuff, yeah? Because uh, you mm. know, superficially, it just it just seems to be a sort of uh, anti capitalist. Exploitation mm. of an underclass thing. It's even stated, you know, by Jano, isn't it? Mm. That, that all, all wealth depends on the exploitation of others. But that's a that's that's really fascinating. Good for good for John Wiles, if that's the case. Mm. Yeah, uh, and just on these these underlying important themes, I found a couple of mentions of faith, which, Gav, you've mentioned already. I found that really quite jarring. I felt like my instinct was when I was I was listening was that the dropping in of faith felt like Ian Stewart Black mentioning a sort of Anglican (laughs) Christian faith (laughs) as a good thing. And I did find it quite jarring, the line, only our faith remains and they will never take that. I found that really out of place and incongruous with the rest of the story, actually. And it it only got a couple of mentions.
1: Do you want to know something weird? Yeah. That line isn't scripted. Oh, really? <laughs> mm. Or oh, it's not in the camera script, at least. It's not, yes, to be fair. I mean, mm. you'd never be 100% sure it's not pencilled in somewhere after the last... It's a really odd, superficial mm.
0: insertion, because it only gets mentioned mm. there. Yeah. And then, at the end, uh, Faith triumphed, or, or whatever.
2: They say that the the strangers must be gods, don't they? Yeah.
1: Oh, yes. He has taken that's... the light gun, he must be a god. Yeah, yeah, that's a little incongruous. Although, I, that might might dovetail into um, an idea I'm going to sell you in a minute.
2: It it sort of ties in with the idea of the the savages being so hopeless and so unwilling to to change things for themselves. They are so oppressed that the, the, the only thing that they can cling on to is faith in some other entity mm. saving them.
0: But it doesn't explore that. It just it just states it and doesn't bottom it out <laughs> yes. at all. It's just dropped on there. Mm. And I love your idea, Reese. I, I I wouldn't mind I wouldn't mind seeing that. But it, it's just it's just done so thinly. And as you say, it's not in the script, mm. so it's obviously a less, a camera script. So it's obviously a last minute addition. Um, mm. Yeah, i just found it strange. Mm.
1: I'm going to sell you a, a a thought that I had, and it starts off as a reach, but I might I might win you over because. I was starting to think there might be some classical mythology in the mix, too. So my thinking is, in the Roman telling of Medusa, she starts off beautiful and she becomes horrifying. My suggestion to you is that the elders' culture appears beautiful and becomes horrifying. (laughs) There's more. (laughs) Stay with me. So Medusa's grotesque nature was uh, enough to turn people to stone. And in The Savages, you got the elders' light guns, the technological product of their ugly civilization, and the light guns freeze people. And it's even said that the power of the light gun is based on the light entering people's eyes, which is linking to the idea that you only get got by the Medusa when you look at her. So, with all that in mind, you've then got the scene where they escape into the labyrinth, which is a little crossover into Minotaur myth, and Stephen is faced with the threat of being turned to stone by the light gun, and he uses a reflective surface to avoid his fate. In the Medusa myth, Perseus, a demigod, is given a mirrored shield by Athena, so he can attack the Gorgon, whereas in the Savages, Stephen uses a mirror, which he takes from Dodo, to reflect the power of the light gun. Having done so, Stephen is declared to be a god. In both stories, the hero uses the power harnessed by his victory to attack his enemies. Perseus goes off on a rampage and is able to use the severed head of the Medusa as a weapon to turn people to stone, just as Stephen is able to take the stolen light gun and attack the elders. And of course, just as Perseus became king of the Mycenae, Stephen becomes king at the end of the Savages, so I say the Savages is a retelling of the Medusa legend.
0: No, brilliant, Gav. I like to think that awesome analysis was purely thought of because I mentioned Clash of the Titans earlier. That's brilliant, Gav.
1: The the other thing I was thinking <laughs> about in in terms of themes was um the brain drain, and it's funny you were saying, Rhys, about um some of the stuff in this story, specifically the, the quarries, has become passé now. It feels a little bit unfair to judge the story that did some of these things, if not first, at least very early on. Because now they feel very familiar. Actually, Doctor Who's never done a body swap story, really, has it? I could only think of New Earth. So the, the idea of taking people's power uh, does feel like a familiar trope now. Um, And there's an awful lot of the savages, I think, turns up again in the Crotons, even down to there being a a back passage from which the drained individuals are ejected. A lot of the same ideas turn up again in Talons of Chang. You've got Greel's Distillation of the Life Essence. I was thinking about um, Sharda. In Sharda and Time in the Rani, you've got the Doctor's intellect being drained, which becomes a pollutant into the baddies' plan Uh, and gives the Doctor an advantage in the end. And just before we sign off on the racism, there's a film I would like to give a quick mention to, but the reason I want to mention it pertains to the twist of that film. So how do I give a spoiler warning for a film (laughs) that if I mention the name of the film and connect it to the savages, it'll give away the end of that film? Anyway, spoiler (laughs) alert for Jordan Peele's film Get Out. Which I I highly recommend if you haven't seen it, go and watch it. Go and watch it now and then finish listening to this bit. So Get Out is a film about an elite group of people who prey on another ethnicity. They use technology to steal their physical advantages and effectively give themselves immortality. They even have a a brain swapping chamber hidden away uh, and everything gets smashed at the end. But unlike The Savages, it doesn't try to invert the racial (laughs) roles. What it does do, it has the same sort of idea that the goodies are sort of the middle class liberals who like art and and stuff instead of the usual tyrants and businessmen who tend to populate these sort of films. And like in The Savages, the doctor's welcomed by the elders and he's given gifts and they have a nice time. And he thinks, yes, Mm. these are my kind of people. Give Give me another great. The elders have got everything right. And there can't possibly be any sinister goings-on behind the scenes. But, yeah, Get Out is about slavery and perceived value of people and all kinds of stuff. It's it's a very good film. It's also
2: the first time the audience would have seen another actor essentially playing the Doctor, which would have been Mm. pretty radical, Mm. I suspect. And it's, it's passé now, because we have seen so many actors playing the character but this is yet another unprecedented thing about the story.
0: There's a terrific argument in Running Through Corridors between Rob and Toby about whether this is a a deliberate attempt to demonstrate that somebody else could play the Doctor as the William Hartnell Mm. incarnation. It's a terrific, hopefully contrived argument. And Toby (laughs) listens to this. I think there's one, you know, they take turns in in giving their analysis and Rob argues so forcefully that this is the case rebutting toby's accusation that that's nonsense and toby doesn't even reply well i think (laughs) Hartnell's contract had been
1: renewed so he wasn't going anywhere so he it can't have been used as a as a testing ground to see if freddie jaeger could be the next doctor
0: not freddie jaeger being the next Mm. doctor but whether someone else can portray the doctor Mm -hmm. convincingly Mm -hmm. what about the structure of the story the plotting the the pacing and so on any thoughts on that folks
1: we we're talking about people finding this a bit intangible. And for me, one of the things with Missing Stories is not getting a feel of the overall framework of what we're lacking. So something like the the Highlanders or, um, or the Smugglers, as much as I like them, I, I, I can't feel any sort of breaks in the story. But with the Savages, I think each episode has quite a distinct feel and focus. And plot advances in a measured way each time. So you've got episode one, which is about the Elder's knowledge of the Doctor and reaction to his arrival. Episode 2 is about uncovering their dirty secrets and the the drama from that. Episode 3, we properly meet the savages and discover their beautiful underground world. And Episode 4 has the outcome of the brain swap with Jano and the epic battle for the planet. So it sort of breaks up nicely in my head and progresses neatly. And there's not many other stories that I can think that way about like if you ask me what happens in episode three of the highlanders or episode five of marco polo i think the cliffhangers
2: know. are probably the highlights of the story actually they're all really uh, engrossing and the way that they were staged sounds fascinating and episode one in particular really grabs me so this scene involved the only recording break of the entire episode and what they did was they moved the cameras so that one could be facing dodo down the corridor and the other basically back to back with the other camera showing the reverse angle of wilder coming down the corridor and they recorded some cut-in shots afterwards to edit into the scene and these are the point of view of Dodo walking down the empty corridor and then the point of view of Wilder sort of stumbling forward and the camera is meant to move erratically and focus and defocus to suggest the disorientation. And then back on the reverse angle, Wilder comes up to the camera
1: and fills the frame and then we roll the credits. Ah, nice. That's very vi- visually interesting and rapid cutting. I was thinking about uh, the end of, the ending of episode two. I, I'm always banging on about the end of episode two cliffhanger of the Ark being so good because it is a is a game changing cliffhanger rather than just being straight jeopardy of somebody's about to be killed and then at the start of the next episode, oh no, they're not killed. And there's a similar thing in the savages here because although the threat at the end of episode two, on the face of it, is is about the Doctor being in danger in the machine it's really another one of those game-changing cliffhangers because really it's where the dynamic of the story is is set to change as a result of those events what are the implications of that experiment being successful and i think that's a really compelling end to that episode on both a sort of intellectual and a visceral level there's a similar thing at the end of episode three with um dodo and steven succumbing to the smoke but the real hook is for the next episode that we've just been shown the results of the intransference and now we know that Jano is imbued with the Doctor's personality Mm. so the throw forward is where's this going to go but then you've also got the sort of the Flash Gordon tension of of immediate physical danger
2: It's genuinely quite disturbing this disorientated, helpless Doctor figure
0: I felt some of the writing was a little naive if I can say that (laughs) i think the reveal of the elders scheme was a bit too contrived and a bit immaturely delivered imagine an alien coming to earth and just kept asking us to show us why we're so advanced (laughs) you are much advanced i would like to know how it's an impossible question to answer if you're part of that civilization what would we say Advancements in agriculture in the West allowed us to divert resource to um, engineering and scientific (laughs) thinking. I mean, how do you answer that question? And I just felt they could have done that in a slightly more subtle way. I don't think they'd have that level of self-awareness. And then to confess about it as well. We are so advanced because we suck the brain. Yeah, I have mixed
1: feelings about that. It's not developed in either way. It's neither brilliantly hidden, nor do they lean into the fact that they are completely upfront about it. They are quite upfront about it, but it's still...
0: Jane knows quite upfront about it, isn't he? But Flower and her companion, they don't know about it.
1: Yeah, they've all got different memos about what they're allowed to tell people. (laughs) But I do quite like the idea that they don't think they're doing anything wrong, and they do defend it quite vigorously at the end, defending their way of life. They also
2: realise that it's something which might be considered wrong in wanting to, however little they do, try to hide it. But they do sort of dodge around the question.
1: But that in itself, whilst probably completely unintentional, rather nicely encapsulates our current sociological problems where we're all encouraged to do certain things whilst desperately aware that we can't really stop doing those things without our lifestyle changing. please please don't use electricity please don't use water please don't use your car don't go on holiday they're all destroying the planet. Meanwhile here are some adverts for your new car, your new holiday. It's a confusing time to be alive. That was Ian Stewart Black's real message, and then it uh, got overtaken with race politics.
0: Film your anti-capitalist march on your iPhone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah.
2: None of the citizens really seem all that contented with this supposedly idyllic society. The guards are complaining about the elders when they're on duty. Centres complaining about the guards showing up late with the prisoners, Flower wonders what it'd be like if they could go outside. I almost get the feeling that this is just the elders or just Jano's pet project and everyone's going along with it. And at the end when, you know, they all destroy this machine, but they haven't destroyed the knowledge. And I imagine they're all like, thank goodness for that. We We can get on with what we were doing before Jano inflicted this ridiculous campaign upon us.
1: Well, we don't know what the rest of the planet's like. The whole thing takes place on an island, so maybe the rest of the planet is just <laughs> perfectly unaffected by Jano and his shenanigans. He's the ba- basically the Bond villain of his There's own There's a film. strange
2: bit. When Dodo's threatening to smash up the equipment, Senta comes in and says, don't, don't go nearer. she could kill us all. W- what does that mean? Are they all so old and ancient that if their source of vitality was even temporarily interrupted
0: they would all just shrivel to husk and expire i thought it was more of a sort of electrical risk or something you know a, a health and safety
1: sort of thing rather than rather than that i do love her line that uh, this stuff must cost a packet yeah it's not framed in in the thought that i could destroy your civilization or anything like that it's this must cost a packet gonna cost you to replace this
0: (laughs) that's a child raised in austerity britain talking isn't it so let's talk about the characters the performances and so on the doctor i don't know if either of you two felt this but i did it felt like a throwback to the very first episode with him mm. landing somewhere and wandering off with his <laughs> RV, his reaction yeah. vibrator, mm. you know, a callback to the very early season one thing where he's first and foremost a scientist and he's exploring and taking readings. That was interesting. Mm. So it felt like this new team of Innis Lloyd and Jerry Davis or Ian Stewart Black had a rough idea that that's what Doctor Who does.
2: I think there's a a pretty direct parallel with an an unearthly child in that there's a scene here where the Doctor has the opportunity, where there is a prone caveman, savage, lying on the ground, and where, in the first story, we saw that the Doctor was only too willing to bash him on the head with a rock to get out of the situation. Here, he, he drops the affable pretense and is so outraged at Idal's treatment of Wilder, that he well seals his fate in, in being captured by the Elders. It shows how far his character has progressed, that he cannot hide his moral outrage.
0: This was the sparkling bit that we talked mm. about at the top, or that I mentioned at the top. Uh, and this was the hair standing up moment mm. for me, because we've never really seen this doctor stand up in defense Mm. of another person Mm. like that and not only does he do it at the scene but then it becomes rather a bit of a prolonged bollocking that he starts dishing out (laughs) to jano as well and we've never really seen Mm. it done quite like that where it's immediate and he's standing there saying no This should not be happening. And he stands Mm. there in protection of of the prone Mm. savage. I thought that was magnificent. I thought that was really good. Yeah. Really powerful and a real moral moment. Those um, discussions
1: in episode two, he really shines, doesn't he? Yeah. Mm. He,
0: he's sharp,
2: and there's no hint of bluster. Yeah, it's correct. It's just
1: full-throated
0: righteous in anger. In contrast, though... <laughs> To every other line of dialogue he has, which sounds like he's just winging it. Every every time he's talking about how advanced and talking about all this advanced science, he never actually articulates any of it. He's always referring to a conversation that's just happened. It felt to me like they were giving him lines that he could handle. And it had all of that Hartnell bluster and feeling that he was make, making it up. And I was never truly convinced that they'd ever had a, a conversation <laughs> about how advanced things are, other than stating that they're advanced. See, I
2: when I was w- watching it and going through the script, I was wondering how much that is a pretense that the Doctor is keeping up right from the beginning, yeah. because there are sort of lingering reaction shots of Hartnell. there's... There's one where uh, Jano says to him, "Come, we have many questions to ask you." And there is a long pause where the camera script indicates that there's a sort of they push in on a close-up of Hartnell. I want to know how he was reacting to those things. Is he sort of doing that knowing look to camera where he's
0: thinking there's something going on? But yeah, I, I agree. I think we need to see.
1: But they have been following his life and adventures through eons of time. Yeah. So
0: And there's nothing
2: there's Jano. no complex dialogue in those either. <laughs> that may explain the uh, fourth war break in the Feast of Stephen. It's talking to
1: Jano. He's talking to Jano. <laughs> talking to Jano. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I noticed just going back to the stark contrast between the uh, Hartnell's performance in that in that Righteous Anger versus any other line where he's got something to say or explain. Um, I found it interesting that uh, he like I often say Troughton approximates the dialogue for the most part. He he doesn't he doesn't repeat what's on the page, he just has a sense of it and and so presumably If you've got a paragraph of text and you know the rough start and finish point and the gist of it is to shout at this person about his behavior, then as a proper actor, a legitimate (laughs) character actor, you can shout that with all your stage knowledge. But if your requirement is a paragraph of text with made-up words that specifically have to explain a machine that doesn't make any sense to you, he can't riff around that. So he's always buggered when he comes to a sentence that he can't yeah. approximate. And I think, as you've said before, Tim, whenever he's got any futuristic stuff, he, he mm. falls down. And I think that's not necessarily an inability to learn the, the uh, techno babble. I think it's, it's just the pressures of the script. But if the line's got no techno babble in it, then, then mm. you can just wing it as a, as a good performer, as Trouton did. He was all over the place all the time.
0: He's not in it a lot again, is he? Bless him. Uh, I know there's probably different reasons Mm -hmm. here, and he's present in the scenes, but he's got no dialogue in episode three, apart from right at the end. He doesn't come in until about 15 minutes Mm -hmm. in episode four.
2: I think he he was taken out of rehearsals to film material on location for the War Machines
0: during that week. Sure.
1: I think he, of the, is it four rehearsal days, he was there for two of them, and was spending most of his time coaching Freddie Jaeger on how to perform the Doctor character. So, uh, so yeah, he was deliberately written out. Uh, that was a revelation to me after after uh, years of just assuming he was on holiday, but he wasn't. He was uh, <laughs> he was there, but he was there but not contributing. Any more on the Doctor? Well, this this sort of leads into Stephen, really, but. The Doctor's absence in Episode 3, as well as being a practical thing, is is critical to allowing Stephen to shine. Quite, as yeah. the, the, the balance of the story shifts mm. to him when he gets the light gun. and He puts Stephen centre stage and he becomes the real hero of the story, proper adventure story. He's really proactive. He has the realisation to use the same pills on the Doctor as they use on Wilder without which the Doctor wouldn't then recover enough to ensure everything played out correctly. And Dodo helpfully says for the audience, Oh, what pills? Oh, I forgot about those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so Stephen, Stephen's moment with seizing the gun and driving the pushback against uh, against the Elders, is it really sets up the idea that he's a doer. And, um... i
0: found those scenes by the way very satisfying dramatically i found them tense and mm. engaging and mm. all the rest of it in the scenes while i was looking at the telesnaps as i was listening i didn't watch a recon i was mm. looking at the telesnaps while listening mm. and i found that i found that quite powerful the,
2: the pursuit in the caves looks stunning really the lighting mm. in that sequence Is fantastic, and you've got the light guns and the light bouncing off the mirror. I that's a sort of Mm. set piece moment that I'd really like to see.
0: So let's talk about Stephen then. He had a quiet first half, didn't he? Mm. You know, he was being belittled by Dodo, uh, having his having his manliness question, yeah, um, and whether he stands up (laughs) to the doctor or not.
2: It's almost as though the sort of Improvement in Dodo's character comes at the expense of Stephen in the first half of the story. He's uncharacteristically lacking in cynicism, and he's hysterical when Dodo wanders
0: off. I have this exact thing in my notes. Uh, by this point, she's swapped personalities with early Stephen: sarcastic, <laughs> almost sardonic, sceptical, mocking. <laughs> yeah, there's a real, there's a real switcheroo there. But you know. The second half mm. is a tour de force for Stephen, and the mm. his send-off doesn't feel perfunctory to me. I found it quite touching. I mm. found it quite touching um, not only because of Dodo's reaction, and we can see that, but also I felt William Hartnell must have been going through the mill mm. a bit as he acted that as well, yeah. and I found it quite... Yeah, I found it quite touching. Stephen as a companion at the end of his time.
1: He's just He's just Peter Purvis, really, isn't he? he? You never get a strong sense. I mean, he's not—he's not space pilot. No, he's not. <laughs> he, he's not space pilot from the future, ever, is he? He's—he's he's just. I mean, he's perfectly fine. I think his he's, his character is so thrown about by the
2: shifting genres and requirements of the stories again, that
0: <laughs> Peter Purvis is all that is allowed to be consistent in the portrayal. Mm. He's done a valiant job throughout, I think. Mm. He, he's done everything that's yeah. been asked for him. He's yeah. been a leading man. He's been an action hero. He's been a comic.
3: Mm.
0: And he, mm. he always throws himself at things. And, uh, you know, sad to see him go, and it's the end of an era. Mm-hmm. And I think the actor did a good job. The characterisation was paper thin. It was complete, as as all of them are. The Their <laughs> the, the, the raison mm-hmm. d'etre is quickly forgotten. But yeah, I mean, you know, I'd raise a glass to Peter Purvis and say, "Good job, good job, mocker." I will disagree
2: mm. with you actually on the um, on his departure. I've always thought of it as a strong one, mm. in that oh yeah, he gets to he gets to lead a, a rebuild and lead a civilization. But I didn't think it was. But I think that may be a reflection of the companion departures that surround it being so weak. <laughs> but if we look at the earlier ones, I feel that it's it's probably the worst companion departure so far in terms of him actually having a desire and want to leave because he's not the one who, you know, he doesn't have a particular established affinity with the savages or a desire to say Doctor, I want to stay. I want to help them rebuild this. He's basically looking for any excuse to get out yeah, of it, isn't he? Because yeah. he says, oh, I couldn't possibly. Oh, I, I couldn't leave you and Dodo. Oh, but what about, what, does it come from both sides? Or what about Tor? Tor might disagree. And everyone's saying, no, no, do it. And even at the end, he's still, I don't think I can do it. So I feel that he should have, it should have been established that he, that he wants to go beforehand. He should have been given more mm. agency rather than kind of accepting his fate out of embarrassment and not wanting to <laughs> refuse. Um, yeah, so I, I'm I'm not so enamoured of it, but it's played well. I mean,
0: it, it's certainly not Ian and Barbara, and it's not even Vicky, but like mm. you say, everything is relative. It's a lot better than it's what comes Dodo. after. It's not Leela.
1: What I would say is that I don't want to re- I don't want to go too far beyond the text in trying to counter argue that but in episode 3 he has effectively been leading the savages he's been advocating for these people and he's determined to do something for them and about their situation so although the um, suggestion that he that he stays and that that role essentially becomes permanent that's sudden it doesn't feel unearned because he's for essentially two episodes he's been in charge of each of the situations as the, as they unfold so i'm kind of somewhere in the, i'm somewhere mm-hmm. in the middle it it is i do get what you say it does feel a little bit uncomfortable that he doesn't he doesn't seem very excited <sighs> about the idea but yeah it's it's you might... earned
2: but not desired but that's not the greatest of sins in yeah. terms of
1: yeah And perhaps if they had um, spent more time on his planet-hopping space Mm. adventurer character than just ending up dumped on a planet somewhere that he had to deal with a new culture wouldn't quite have seemed so uncomfortable. Because it it feels uncomfortable because Peter Purvis is just playing a bloke from 1966. (laughs) So, yeah, muddy at best, but... No, I don't. I don't. I don't uh, dislike it. I think it's a nice ending. And I quite like that sort of challenge. It has that feeling of um, when Susan leaves, the doctor forces her out, basically in the same way, saying, you don't you say you don't want to stay, but I'm telling you, you do really. So I've locked the doors. (laughs) 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 by. At least he didn't steal Stephen's shoes. (laughs)
0: <laughs> let's talk about dodo no you two will not be aware of course but the last time we visited dodo's adventures it was in the celestial Toymaker, and because that's not been published yet you need to know we weren't very complimentary i think i think she was referred to as a, an hmm. imbecile uh, by by one of the <laughs> um by, by one of the panel uh, and nobody disagreed and since the celestial toy maker we've had the gunfighters uh, and we're not reviewing that, of course, but she she has more to do in that. And, and mm. she has some agency and she has some good scenes where she's in charge and toting a gun about. And then we have Dodo in what is effectively her last story in The mm.
1: Savage. I think she's really good in this. Mm. I think she's very proactive. Inquisitive. Yeah, instead of fainting at the sight of The Savage at the start of episode two... Her initial shock turns to sympathy, and that act of compassion becomes currency later on when, is it wilder? Mm. Um, Stops the others attacking. I like her dodging around the the trolleys and the computers, the technicians trying to get her for the operation. That's all kind of physical fun stuff as she's sticking up for herself. And, And like I said, I like the bit where she says, this must cost a packet um which <laughs> foreshadows the value of this stuff later. Yeah, I think she's really strong in this and and yeah, she does die away a little bit as things go on, but um but she has to make way for Steven.
0: Yeah. It's a good story for her, isn't it? Mm. As you say, she explores, she's got the curiosity, she she is the driver of the plot uh for the first two episodes. Mm. So well done, Dodo. It's
2: just a shame that she didn't get more mm. opportunity to play the part in this way to have her character served as well as it is in this story and in the gunfighters yeah. the the dodo renaissance era is <laughs> abruptly curtailed yeah. and it shouldn't have happened
0: justice for dodo okay then uh jano frederick Yeager, he's he's the star of the piece isn't he really he's got a star quality for me uh, quite charismatic I want to listen to him talk. Mm. Uh, I want to see his mm. performance. And then there's the Hartnell uh, performance. What do we think of What do we think of Jano? Mm. What do we think of his Hartnell performance?
2: I'm not too keen on his Hartnell, <laughs> if I'm honest, and this may be coloured by many decades of poor Hartnell impersonations putting me off <laughs> even the notion of it but i think it's a little bit unsubtle and of course we're missing the so much of it by having only the audio but the the pitching up of his voice to me is a bridge too far and all the other stuff in there the sort of ums and ahs and the dialogue i think could have sold this thing better and more interestingly it's it's sort of too obvious what he's doing, mm. and it just comes across to me like Kermit the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, aside from the pitching of the voice aside, he is capturing the, the Hartnell Doctor. It just mm. feels stilted a little bit to me. I
1: think I agree mostly that the voice doesn't bother me too much, but yes, I would prefer it without... But it's a really solid performance when he's being Jano. And it's, a, it's a, I think it's a very enjoyable stab at Hartnell. Mm. And um, the book says that he clasps his lapels and stuff. Yeah. So I do wonder what we're missing in the visuals. Mm. Yeah.
0: One of the commentaries I read, I can't, apologies, I can't remember who it was, but pointed out that in Frederick Jaeger's three appearances in Doctor Who, he's possessed on e- in each one as <laughs> a
1: possession of being well, possessed specialist, mm,
0: specialist.
1: <laughs> I, I, it's funny you should say that um, is it a coincidence that earlier in this year that he made Doctor Who uh, he also played two roles in a heist movie about doppelgangers called The Man in uh, the Mirror that, uh, that went out on the same day as Escape Switch so is it possible that there was just a thought in the back of Chris Barry's mind that this bloke can do basically a, a dual role in, a, mm. in an as-life This production. bloke can play more
0: than one character. He's a, yeah. <laughs> He's legitimate. He's a legitimate character. <laughs> uh, yeah.
2: It's nice to imagine Hartnell sort of showing him the ropes of being the doctor mm. in rehearsals that's a really nice image to take away from the the production of the story
1: uh, in the script Jano verbalizes his uh, internal dilemma he asks am I Jane am, am I Jano am I the doctor so it's nice that that was recognized as redundant mm. he just does it with a he does it with a glance we don't know so you and Solon
0: as Chow I know little about him but good old man slash savage acting with a nice rich mm. delivery <laughs> slow deliberate tired brilliant makeup Yeah, he lends some mm. gravitas to it yeah. doesn't he sure yeah um.
2: he was I think he was quite a coup at the time he's he sort of gets a lot of the promotional he gets a lot of the promotion uh, because he would just been in yeah, you he appeared
1: used... in newspaper clippings sure. and
2: things. Yeah. He's... He'd do you have anything to
0: say about Centre Norman Henry?
2: He doesn't really get a lot to do. There's one telesnap in which he looks a lot like a turtle <laughs> and I I can't think anything else about him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he was in an episode of Public Eye, which I adore—a 1973 episode, evidently. <laughs> was he a turtle in that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I uh, the majority of my research has been into <laughs> Nanina. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Claire Jenkins. Now. It has been said that Claire Jenkins, better known for playing Tanya Lernov in Wheel in Space, wore the same costume as Raquel Welch in the historical Ooh. docudrama uh, One Million Years B.C. Have you seen One Million Years <laughs> B.C., Gav? But yes. And did you enjoy the, the historical depictions of early man fighting with giant turtles and dinosaurs and things? Is that I did,
1: Yes. true
0: to what happened? it sparked my interest in <laughs> <laughs> sure so i think we should put this idea that they were both wearing the same costume to the test so in our hmm. missing episodes of vault dressing up chest we have exact repli- replicas so gav there you go you take that wand pop right. over behind the screen over oh, there okay. and put that on please and okay. reese here's yours could you pop over to the other screen mm. if you want to? Um. You can share a screen. I don't mind, and put that one on, and we'll fast forward here to because uh, we don't need to listen to someone getting changed in the distance. Are, are you sure? Oh, it's a bit tight.
2: Are
0: you sure this is all of it? Mm. So, Gavin, Reese, step out. Gav is modelling for us today the Racker Welch piece. It's a revealing, curve-hugging two-piece swimsuit fashioned from chamois leather that barely covers the B&B, which is to say the same for bosoms and bottom. The top consists of two pieces of fur that crisscross under the knockers and meet at the back, providing scarce, if not imprudent, support. But the triangular shape complements the roundness of the boobage. The bottom is a mid-rise brief with narrow sides with a modesty flat fur on the front. Turn around please, love. Okay, the buttock exposure is moderate to full.
1: Can you stop looking? Uh, sorry.
0: And Reese, who is today demonstrating the Claire Jenkins, is wearing a one-piece, virtue-preserving, skin-tight swimsuit, fashioned from what appears to be brand suede. The integrity of the piece is provided by one shoulder only, and several panels of fur both accessorize and give some structure and shape. No significant amount of cleavage can be observed, and the bottom area is brief shapes and hip-hugging, with a lovely yet unnecessary skirt panel attached, which almost makes it a one-piece skirtini. However, reese turn around, (laughs) thank you, buttock exposure is bordering on indecent. (laughs) (laughs) so in summary and to answer everyone's query they are distinctly different pieces of costumery thank you very much both so men do you want to get changed back or carry on in the furs i mean it is jolly warm down here with all the heat dumps from the vaults it's very hard yeah. to find like this.
2: Can I can I keep this after the podcast?
0: <laughs> you can, indeed. <laughs> That's your fee. Um, so, <laughs> where does this myth come from? That, um, as it gets mentioned an awful lot in every single review, it's one of the go-to things that Claire Jenkins was either wearing the same costume or doing a Raquel Welch. And believe me, hey. listeners... I have spent a lot of time studying this. I've scrutinized the telesnaps. I have watched One Million Years BC, and I've not only concentrated on Raquel Welch, I've concentrated on every fur bikini that is in that, and there is no crossover whatsoever. This is one of the sacrifices that I'm willing to make for you, our listeners. So anyway, <laughs> Reese, where does this come
1: <laughs> You should do a website on this where you catalogue each of the fur bikinis through time. <laughs>
0: sure. Reese, where does this come from?
2: Uh, this It seems to have been Christopher Barry's go-to anecdote mm. when asked about the story. Um, and he tells it slightly differently in different accounts. So sometimes he's, he says apparently, or so I was led yeah. to believe this was the case. I saw one interview where he said it was Ursula Andress's costume from two thousand BC. So it's not something where he's he's fully on top of the details. That film doesn't exist.
0: <laughs> um, I did wonder whether he so whether he or whoever spoken to him had got confused with one hundred thousand BC, i.e. an unearthly child. So I I also spent a smaller, less pleasurable <laughs> amount of time scrutinizing the furs available in that. And again, there's no crossover. They're all completely different cuts. Uh, it's not to say that there is a job lot of furs uh, somewhere mm. at Berman's or whatever that, you know, was lent to a film. And it might make a, a brief appearance somewhere, but it's certainly not the same mm. piece of costuming. I wonder whether that's just something that Christopher Barry
2: manifested in his mind thinking a bit too much about Claire Jenkins. Yeah, maybe. Because he'd he'd given her a a very small part in a previous production and he wanted to give her a bigger part. Um, And she was the (laughs) only actress on his shortlist for the part of Nanina. But... uh, on the short on his shortlist for flower was Lisa Thomas, who oh. was in One Million Years B.C. Oh. So, so maybe there's a, a kernel of something there.
0: But it's one of these. It, it's <laughs> one of these that are lost in the mists of of time. I find ourselves. I find myself when I'm when I'm planning these things, digging more and more into who said mm. what and when rather than going to the primary uh, primary sources.
2: Yeah, this does seem to happen where people involved with the show relate certain yeah. quote-unquote facts, yeah. and they're repeated for years and years but not verified. There's another one which comes up, which is that uh, Caroline Ford wore her stripy top um, in the St. Trinian's film. Yeah, hmm. That's not true. She doesn't wear it in that film, uh, and that
0: anecdote comes from Carol Anne Ford saying that she did wear it in that film. Sure, and and, and with Claire Jenkins and Nanina, it's it's. Uh, I'm not being funny, but we need to see it because she doesn't have a lot to say, and a lot of, uh, and but a lot of her uh, performances, action. She has some nice mm-hmm. um, interactions mm. with Exhaust when he's captured uh and, and, and leads the moral way there. But yeah. Um
1: Yeah. The the Nanina Exos mm. arc is is the through line of the story. I mean she's essentially the reason that the the savages win through because mm. she saves Exorce and reasons with him not to tell the elders at the end. And without that interaction the revolt would have failed. So uh, her, her relationship with Exorce is, is what unifies the, the two factions and drives the story. And I really like how nicely crafted that all is. I mean, it starts with her being chased through the quarry and him shooting her in the back. And then she eventually shows compassion, ultimately wins mm. him round. And then in the final battle, she jumps in the way of his gun. And whereas he shot her at the beginning of the story without thought in the end her action is enough to bring him round. and um it's funny really because jano needed the doctor's brain juice in order to develop a conscience whereas exhaust gets there on his own because nanina is uh, compassionate towards mm. him so that, I thought that was a curious little thing because it's a suggestion that none of these people have any sense of right and wrong until the doctor <laughs> poisons them with a conscience. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, Nina's love wins through, and I really like that. I like that the the, the story's tops and tailed by by this uh, by by him pointing his gun at her, and when it ends, when it ends the more positive yeah. way, the story ends properly. It's nice. Yeah,
0: sure. Well said. Anyone else we want to talk about?
1: Avon, who's the dolly soldier from the invasion, isn't he? Mm. He doesn't have a great deal of characterization, and Flower is equally vapid. But they they play an important role, especially in how they exit the story mm. uh, with much foreboding. And there's an interesting thing on that because there's a, there's a significant moment on screen that's not in the camera script. Now, it's possible we're missing a version of the final script because there's a there's a page 23A of revisions, which obviously replaces page 23, and we've now only got page 24, so I wonder if there was then a 24A, which has been lost to time. But anyway, um, so after Dodo apologises to Flower and Avon for getting them into trouble, Flower and Avon are, are fretting mm. about what happens, and there's a scene added that's not in the camera script, where a guard comes with a light gun and captures them and takes them off for who knows uh, what. In the final version it really ramps up the jeopardy knowing how far the elders will go to protect their secret and guard against um, people who deviate from their, their course and don't tow the party line. Um, so although Flower and Avon do just sort of disappear, it's it's an important disappearance in that it has this sort of sense of unresolved foreboding. So I, I kind of quite like that. It's a little bit clumsily done. but a, uh,
2: Their names are actually mentioned in the stage directions of the following scene, where the Doctor, Stephen and Dodo return to the council chamber. Avon and Flower are mentioned in the stage directions. So at one point they would have continued at least until that moment in the script, right. and there's, there's a point where um, where Jano Doctor talks about his two young friends, and sen- Center says Avon and Flower. So you wonder whether they there had been an intention right, to yeah. continue their involvement in the story.
0: Yeah, interesting.
2: I think the sudden dropping of Avon and Flower from the story is perhaps emblematic of some of the treatment of the characters in this. In, that, To me, they sometimes feel like puzzle pieces being moved around in service of the plot rather than real three-dimensional people. Mm. Uh, there's a scene early on as well. In in episode one, when um, Chal and Tor are discussing whether to attack the doctor and chal is saying we must kill this man and tor is the timid one um trying to say no then in episode two in almost the exact situation when they are coming upon steven and dodo tor is the one who is advocating to kill them and chal is the one saying no we must wait and you know the it's it's totally inconsistent. It's, yeah, savages by their very nature are inconsistent, <laughs> though. And exhaust. He's not in episode two, is he not? He's not in it. He's not in it at all.
1: He's exhausted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, just before we get on to the missing episodes, let's give it a review, shall we? Let's see. Let's find. Let's try and summarize our feelings towards it or uh, our experience with it. I'll go first. Why not? I liked it, but while I was listening and enjoying it, I was haunted by everyone else saying that it's boring, That um, and, and I was always trying to puzzle whether I should be enjoying it. But I did enjoy it. Episode one, not quite so much. But I feel that the cave sequence with Stephen was very powerful. I think the... the the bit where Hartnell is getting uh, the brain drain, I found that to be very powerful indeed. And what a cliffhanger. Mm. And all the noise and the electronic mm. sound effects and so on as that builds, I found that to be quite satisfying. Uh, I, As I said earlier, I found the conclusion to be quite satisfying and moving. My only sort of issue with it is the moments were very standout and there were parts between where I found myself waiting for the next impressive moment mm. to happen. But, um, yeah, I really enjoyed listening to it. I enjoyed the development of, of the story. I enjoyed the, the the pace of it, the snowballing of the plot. I enjoyed it, and I feel now like it's well and truly cemented, <laughs> you know, it started at the top saying a lot of people find it slippery. I found it relatively slippery. Mm. But now I feel it's cemented, having studied it and listened to it and enjoyed it. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Certainly mm. not the 5 out of 10 that Harry uh, Stammers and Walker <laughs> gave it in the handbook. Uh, Reese. For me, it's
2: fine. As you say, there are some real standout moments mm. and there are bits that I'd, I'd really love to see. But th- they kind of sink down into the, the malaise of the rest of the story, which is a little bit plodding for me. And if I want to watch a story of a, a human society living in a, a walled-off community surrounded by wasteland, shot on location in a quarry, uh, hiding a sinister secret of exploitation of the citizens written by Ian Stuart Black... I'll watch the macro because it's got giant crabs in it well you won't <laughs> <laughs> i'll pretend to watch the macro and that that's what it boils down to to me is that a lot of what it does it does well enough but it's done in ways that i prefer
0: in lots of other places sure okay i think one of the i think one of the, the confusing things again emotionally when you're watching these is i'm also enjoying it because i'm interested Mm. and it, mm. it makes it quite hard to weigh it up as a piece of television by itself. Anyway, Gav,
1: I, I think I've shown my hand already here, but uh, I I really, really love it. I think it's uh, underappreciated. I think it's very visual. There's a lot of action, so I think its reputation suffers because it's missing. I think a lot of the character beats are lost to us because they're non-spoken. Like Freddie Jaeger having his meltdown when his brain's in mm. turmoil. The scene where Dodo walks into the transfer room and sees what's going on is really compelling in the script and it just doesn't come over at all in the audio, even even in the loose canon reconstruction. There's just no sense of of the unsettling, unfolding nature of her perceiving the implications of what she's seeing. So there's so much I think lost and Nina and Exorce, I think that relationship would be really enjoyable to watch develop. And like we were saying, I mean, I, I get I get your point about the macro being similar with Giant Crabs, but at this point, that hadn't been written, and arguably that a writer builds and builds on what goes before, so you know, if Robert Holmes had only ever written The Crotons, I think it's, it's still a, a valid thing, but The Crotons borrows uh, a lot from this. I think lots of future things borrow from this. It, it, yeah, like you say, it's very familiar to our modern eye, and it, it is done again in things like Macro but those hadn't been done when this was made, so you can't blame this for being an early example of a trope. Sure, it's a, it's a bit on the nose a lot of the time, and there is some some of that sort of Cod Shakespearean, especially with Chow. The kind of dialogue where it's like, for if it is true what you say, <laughs> um, and all of that kind of shtick. But it's fine. It's of its time. I like the episode three interlude. I like the build-up to episode four. And episode four, I think, if that was discovered, that would be a standout of this era. It's got hot pursuit and gun battles, the struggle for control of the transference room, Got the gleeful smashing up, which thankfully we can see a little bit, and then it's capped off with the the emotion of the departure of Stephen. He's a real hero in the story, and and I think it works a lot because of mm. him in the final in the final uh, two parts. So I would um, I would I'm not sure I'd go so far as to call it a lost classic, uh, but I think it's definitely a hidden gem, and I would I would absolutely love to see it come back. And we can all we can all enjoy the the sets and the, the lost performances and Claire Jenkins' costume.
0: On to the missing episodes aspect. So as I mentioned at the top, we've got the Telesnaps, which is a welcome break, uh, which is which are a welcome return. We also have high quality audio, courtesy of Graham Strong. Mm. We've actually got five different five. copies of the
2: audio, at least. Yeah, Graham Strong's are the, the most well-known mm. and the highest quality, at least for this story, uh, but David Holman, Richard Landon, John de Rivas, and also the mysterious Randolph mm. also record this story. And there's a little mystery about the audio, which I've latched onto and thought about often, that I wanted to try and solve. And it's that different sources ge- seem to give different accounts of the cliffhanger reprise from the gunfighters. Oh. Uh, wiped and the Complete History, DWM Archive say that there is no reprise from the gunfighters. Uh, The reconstructions have the reprise and it cuts sort of midway through Hartnell's dialogue and the BBC narrated audio has the full end scene from the gunfighters and I always wondered why there were these differing accounts. One possible reason why we might not know what is the case is that the audios, when recorded, they often chopped off the titles and made sort of edited compilations of them, which ran the episodes ran into one another, so the boundary between episodes became obscured. Mm. Uh, and there's a there's quite an audible jump in the audio when the gunfighter's reprise occurs uh, before you switch to sort of wilderness sounds. So I wondered whether that was where a tape edit had been made in the recording, and that we didn't we didn't quite know what was the... So I wondered whether it was assumed that the Gunfighters reprise should be there, and that's backed up in the camera script, but that there was some other evidence to suggest that it shouldn't be. So I got in touch with Robert Wynn, who found the Randolph tapes, and asked him to check the Randolph recordings. And what's unique about the Randolph recording is they pretty much all have full opening and closing sure. credits. Yeah, It does contain the full reprise from the gunfighters. So oh. that little mystery that's been nagging me for a while. Uh, <laughs> you can now sleep soundly. Yes, Brilliant. after being led astray by certain publications. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, actually, um, I went and looked at the telesnaps again, and the first telesnap is clearly from the gunfighters reprise it's um a shot of the scanner and you can there's reflections of light on the monitor screen which match up with the scene so if i'd actually
0: looked at that (laughs) years ago
2: i wouldn't have had to worry
0: so there you have it officially we now know there is a little bit less missing savages thanks to reese (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well it's it's just
2: an example of all the mundane things we don't know because these yeah. things these stories are missing and intangible and jigsaw
0: puzzles. We also have about a minute of moving pictures. So um if you haven't listened to our Galaxy 4 episode, then go back and dig that out of the back catalogue. Because a senior fan called Jan Vincent Rudsky obtained a reel of 8mm footage in exchange for a Radio Times 10th anniversary <laughs> magazine in that he sent... That might just be the best deal in the history of the universe. <laughs> yeah indeed, so he, he, he got a letter Insane. from a, a a fan in australia and said look i've got this stuff how about you send me a magazine and Jan had a stack of them <laughs> and and so the deal was done and to to Jan's surprise and delight lo and behold weeks later in the post he received a reel of footage so as i say we've got about a minute of of footage uh which is eight millimeter and flickery but has been uh, roughly restored, and and you certainly can get more than a decent idea of of what those scenes look like when they're married up to the audio. So yeah, we have we have a a minute of of moving footage, or just over a minute, I think it is.
3: Mm.
2: And it's it's lovely that the person who filmed this footage really seemed to have a proclivity for companion departures, and they've got those lovely closing moments. Yeah, sure. There's an interesting quirk about the 8mm footage of the Savages in particular, in that there are a couple of clips which are repeated on the reel, on the film. And this is not a case of of a clip just being duplicated, uh, either digitally or by analogue means. These are two distinct recordings of the same section of footage, from seemingly different airings of the episode. Mm. Uh, and we can tell that's the case because the um, the framing of the image, if you take the identical moment between these two different versions, the framing of the image on the television screen is different. So there's more picture to the top left on one of them, for example. And these clips are, dodo saying to the doctor we've got to get back to the tardis and dodo running into steven's arms those are on there twice oh, and they're interesting and they're not always in the correct placement in terms of the sequence of the story um there's a clip from episode three which comes after a clip from episode four so it's clear not only that the the footage was compiled and edited together because sometimes being said that it was completely unedited, no editing was done, that was everything that was shot and it is what it is, it was clearly compiled together. It doesn't necessarily mean that any more was actually filmed, but it's been chopped up and stitched back together. Mm. And they were filming on both occasions, what well, they were filming on at least two screenings of the stories and it it's often been assumed i think that it was all recorded on repeat screenings because the the filmer seemed to know when the important moments in the episodes were but um there's the bit where hartnell is comforting where the doctor is comforting dodo that little clip is in three distinct sections and two of the sections are from one recording, and the middle section is from the other recording. Hmm. You can tell because they're of different brightness. Hmm. So, I don't know, it, it shakes up a little bit of the conventional wisdom around the recording, and I just want to know more about how it was put together.
0: Well, the owner of The reel has been contacted and has been visited And wishes to remain Mm. anonymous but the person who visited him and interviewed him was damien shanahan and yet this is another reason why damien if you're listening uh i'd love to record (laughs) a five hour interview with you (laughs) um uh the the key takeaway from from damien's interaction with this collector was that there is no more but uh, perhaps some of these mysteries could be put to bed. So let's talk about overseas sales. So as ever, as we have covered previously more than once, BBC Enterprises procured 16mm film copies which would be sold to uh, to various countries and a limited number of prints would be passed from country to country in what we call bicycling and Reese has the detail yeah it's
2: it's pretty much the same story that we've been hearing for most of season three mm. um Australia get first dibs first shown there in March 1967 uh, then with a repeat in each region roughly a year later Barbados show it in April 1968 followed by Zambia in August of the same year mm. uh, New Zealand airs it in mid1969. Sierra Leone in the summer of 1970 and finally Singapore in February 1972 in a so-called back catalogue
0: sale. Sure and this is a familiar tale. Is, is there anything to say about how we can discern which prints went from where to where?
2: Yeah it, it looks like there were three prints, possibly four, mm. but three is kind of the minimum number you would need australia their first obviously they need a new set of prints uh there's no fate recorded for their prince of the savages which i think we may come to later barbados they aired the story before the australian repeat screenings had finished so barbados need their own set of prints and it's it's very likely that they sent theirs on to zambia i think they bought the same package Of stories, so it's logical that Zambia would get their prints, and Sierra Leone, it's logical that they would get the Barbados prints because they were both serviced by TIE, who you may have heard of before. (laughs) And New Zealand, although they aired the story in mid 1969, we know that their censors assessed the films before the Barbados Zambia showings. So New Zealand had their own set of prints, and we know from their film traffic records that their prints were sent on to Singapore. So you've got the Australia print, Barbados-Zambia-Sierra Leone print, and the New Zealand-Singapore print, three prints.
0: Sure. Now... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> listeners will be aware that we have a heightened awareness whenever Sierra Leone is mentioned <laughs> so I would heartily recommend going back and listening to a Myth Makers podcast and um, we covered it a, a number of times but we touched on it in the Celestial Toymaker and indeed the last time we will cover this is spoilers for the smugglers so let's just recap the investigation into the uh <laughs> the history of these Dr Who prints in Sierra Leone as it emerged in about 2011 2012 in 2011 uh, two episodes were returned by collector Terry Burnett and in the press coverage of this <laughs> a comment in <laughs> the Guardian newspaper said that uh that a relative of this person was in Sierra Leone and they had seen Doctor Who tapes in situ in the station there. This caused a kerfuffle online and Paul Venez's Missing Episodes Commander-in-Chief then issued an update on the state of investigation into Sierra Leone. He stated that although they are sure that the episodes were there into the 1990s, unfortunately, one of the lesser side effects of the Civil War, which raged throughout the 1990s, was that the TV archive there, the TV station there, was completely destroyed. He said that the stories that were still thought to be there in the 1990s were from Galaxy 4 through to the Smugglers. Less Dalek's Master Plan and Mission to the Unknown. He asserted that you shouldn't go looking. It's rubble. If there was anything there, they would go. Now... A, cl- a clarification was later issued on the status of the TV station because it was not destroyed. He later clarified to say that the film storage facility was destroyed and online investigations by armchair pains in the arse such as myself revealed that there are no <laughs> records of uh, a destruction of a TV store, uh, a a television store. There is record of the destruction of the gramophone library, which was um, in close proximity to uh, the TV station, but no records exist. There's also a record of a destroyed, um, a destroyed television uh, signal tower. One of the reasons they feel sure that or they felt sure that season 3 existed in Sierra Leone is because they had re- they had received a uh, an account from a third party who related the stories of a friend's uncle who saw an episode to uh, during a visit to Freetown in the early 80s it was in black and white and featured the first one with the white hair and cavemen living in a wilderness outside a futuristic city who were captured and put in a machine and tortured, which sounds pretty much bang on, a description of what we've just been talking about for a couple of hours. Sounds like it. Sounds bang on, doesn't it? (laughs) However, however... Uh, What we also have is in the second volume of Richard Molesworth's White, and I will read directly, there are very credible reports that some Hartnell episodes may have been screened again in Sierra Leone, without the BBC's consent some years later. It's almost certain, it is almost certain that at least the Savages was screened in 1984. Many of the Hartnell episodes that SLBS purchased in the 1960s were still in the SLBS film vault in the 1990s. However, civil war broke out in the country in 1991 and during the war, SLBS's television station, including its film vault, was totally destroyed in 1999. Now, this is the key part. Paperwork indicates that it still held film prints of Galaxy 4, The Mythmakers, The Massacre, The Savages, and The Celestial Toymaker at the time. Uh, he's missed out the smugglers. So <laughs> either there is paperwork that indicates that they were holding these films, or there isn't. And I would very much like to know what that paperwork was. If that isn't enough. To say that the films were there and then subsequently destroyed, Philip Morris was interviewed uh, a, <coughs> a few years after this, a few years after the return of Enemy and Web by Toby Haydock, and he said, "Well, what happened is that there was a rebel leader who wanted to ensure that there were no, there was no footage of um, his activities, and so he fired a bazooka at a shed." that contained the film and that was destroyed. However, thankfully, if you like, they weren't dest- the Doctor Who films were <laughs> destroyed because they were returned to London in 1974, which does gel with other theories about uh, a great return of black and white Doctor Who and BBC output in 1974. The reaction to this online from Paul Venezes seemed a little bit caught out, to be frank, but, uh, and, and he, he said, you know, this is Africa, anything could have happened, but if there is paperwork that exists per wiped to say that they were there in the 1990s, then they can't also have been returned in 1974. The podcast, the Missing Episodes podcast has been unable to establish uh, what this paperwork <laughs> is, and if indeed it exists. The twist in the tale is is that in 2018, <laughs> uh, Philip Morris appeared on The One Show to explain that he uh, got a phone call from the hotel that he stayed in during his visit to Sierra Leone, which indeed he's been to. There are photographs of him stood outside Uh, the iconic SLBS, SLBC (laughs) Gates, Uh, and he said that some years later he got a phone call from a hotel in Freetown where he stayed to explain that some BBC films had been found in a derelict Freetown cinema, which was at the point of demolition, and that Christmas two episodes of Morecambe and Wise were screened on BBC Two. Whatever the truth of the matter, and I'm not suggesting that any uh, deliberate misinformation has been published, but that perhaps some detail has fallen by the wayside and some some inadequate summary may have happened by someone at some point, all of this cannot be reconciled. So I'd be fascinating to know, it would be fascinating to know if it is still reconcilable um, and to hear from Philip Morris a, a full and detailed account. But I, I don't see that that's likely to happen. That's Sierra Leone again <laughs> 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 so just to conclude on sierra leone a, a counter theory that has been proposed is that we do know from bbc sales records that they bought a handful of john pertwee's stories and that one of those stories is the monster of peladon so backtracking the very first thing i said which was a witness account a second witness account that said that tapes exist Uh, SLBC, Doctor Who Tapes, well they would have been sent pal tapes. So if we wish to believe that a uh, relatively untrained eye can distinguish between tape and film, then John Predler has put forward a plausible theory that says that the account would actually describe the monster of Peladon as well, and that the TV in Sierra Leone would have been viewed on black and white sets only at the point that was transmitted. So that's a, 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 an interesting and, and plausible counter-theory. And there's also a theory that it could could have been at the Earth's core, starring Peter Cushing, who also played the first Doctor Who, if you like, and that... Hmm. Um, at a screening of At the Earth's Core uh, as part of a film festival that there was a Sierra Leonean delegation <laughs> and they could have <laughs> bought the film and screened it in the 80s. <laughs> so there's a few interesting things there but it would be fascinating to know the truth of uh, it or the finite detail. Richard Molesworth's Wiped also says
2: that it is clear from studying the audio and the snaps of the savages that the episode one reprise wasn't included.
0: Well, there you go. Hello, Future Tim here. Since I recorded this episode, I had the pleasure of talking to Paul face-to-face at the BFI after the Sea Devil screening. And indeed, as he had told Toby Haydoke when Toby appeared on the Myth Makers episode, Paul is, quote, absolutely certain that... John Predal's Monster of Peladon theory is correct, and that the Savages was returned in 1974. Goodbye. Now, one final twist in the tale, in that we have recently talked about and will talk about again. Uh, the notion that Paul Venezes has spoken about that a film collector in the UK has two episodes of William Hartnell's Doctor Who. And how he described these episodes is that one was not on a list of episodes known to be returned from Australia in 1975, and the other one was. Now, he later issued a clarification to say that in fact neither were on the list of episodes known to be returned by Australia in 1975 but he he didn't have the list committed to memory he just thought it was on it and it wasn't now uh, you have to do a bit of speculation here but you have to wonder what would you assume is on the list of episodes uh, returned by Australia in 1975 but isn't and you straight away go to season 3 so you might assume that the massacre is on the list you might assume that the celestial toy maker is on the list and you might assume that the savages is on the list I'm knocking out the celestial toy maker because we know that at least episode 4 a copy of episode 4 was retained in Australia where it was later found there could have been multiple copies but let's just keep it as simple as possible knock the uh, the Celestial Toymaker out that leaves a potential for one of the episodes to be from the massacre and one of the episodes to be from the savages so it's, there is potential for one episode of the savages to be known about as residing in a collection in the UK that an episode of the savages has been rumored from time to time we may never know hello future Tim here again The fault occurs that if Paul is absolutely certain that The Savages were sent back from Sierra Leone in 1974, might one of the episodes that he's aware of in the hands of a private collector be The Savages, which, if it didn't come back via Australia, it could have come back via Sierra Leone, perhaps affording the certainty that an episode that has been in the UK since 1974 cannot also have been in Sierra Leone in the 1980s. Pure, irresponsible speculation. Goodbye.
2: Tim, do you want some wild, rampant speculation about the
0: fate of Australia's Savages Prince? Reese, I would love some wild and rampant speculation about the fate of Australia's Savages Prince. Okay, so I was
2: reading about the. Uh the australia prince and um in wiped there's a table of of what was known what is known to have Mm. happened to the prince and for the savages it says no fate recorded sure or no evidence of a fate so for the faceless ones there is evidence of the fate of episodes two to five Mm. i can't remember what what it says about them either they were junked or returned no fate Read between the lines, no fake recorded for episode one. Mm. We know that the ABC print of The Faceless Ones episode one was in private hands in Australia around 1968 and eventually came into the possession of collector David G, mm-hmm. who also had episode two, I believe, of The War Machines. Mm. So-, so, if this episode escaped the ABC in the 60s and therefore did not have a recorded fate could the same have happened to the savages why should the savages among all these episodes whose fate was recorded not have any fate recorded? could it be that they escaped just in the same way that this episode of the faceless ones did
0: indeed and that is the reason why no fate was recorded There's an inconsistency in the ep- in the junking of the episodes of we're in space as well I seem to recall. Either one is recorded and the rest aren't, or the rest are recorded and one isn't. Hmm. Well, there you go. How very interesting. And that concludes our look at the savages. If you've enjoyed this, please find the time to give us a written review on Apple Podcasts. Five-star written reviews propel us up the podcast charts more than listens, which help more people to find us. I'd like to offer my sincere thanks to our executive producer and top man, Rich Tipple. Also, thanks to the wonderful editor and artist for hire, B. Garrido, who not only provides our cover art, but helps with the editing, and for this episode, even some fashion words. Please check out her brilliant Target artwork at begoridoart.weebly.com. If you'd like to help us cover our costs and keep me in crumpets, head to www.patreon.com slash missingepisodes, where you get early access, the patrons have had this for a month, and other goodies, such as an indecently thorough and dishy Omniruma timeline, and a mighty Kublai Khan patrons take part in a monthly Missing Episodes chat. Speaking of whom, many gracious thanks to Andy Kitching, Anthony Carroll, Anthony Wainer, Bedweer Gulledge, Chris Fone, David Matthewman, Dean Poole, Dietz Easterwood, Gary Gillat, Harry Townsend, Jess Jerkovic, Jim Chernowden, Jonathan Molyneux, Matthew, Paul Cook, Ray Badrick, Sarah Irving, Simon Exton, Simon Whitehead, Sinead Morse, Stuart Boyle, and Tim Arding! If Patreon isn't for you, you can always tip at ko-fi.com missing missingeps. It's always worth finding the podcast on our YouTube channel, as occasionally you'll be able to see our ugly mugs and pelt your screens with rotten fruit for taking so long to produce content. I'm available on Twitter at Doctor Who Podcasters, with a DR, and we have a Facebook page. Anyway, Gav, Reese, once again, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Bye. Happy, happy, send
1: both of you
2: Sorry, just one last thing. Something really exciting that I noticed watching the reconstruction of Galaxy 4 on the new Blu-rays is that the cliffhanger reprise in episodes 2 and 4 is new audio that has never before been released, which I assume was either of too low quality to include on the BBC audios, or that it was cut off from the known copies uh, in making compilations without the opening and closing titles. So there is actually new 1960s Mm. Doctor Who audio to be heard on the Galaxy 4 reconstruction, and only on the reconstruction, not in the animated episodes, Mm. because I believe this would have been considered too low quality to use. So what they did was edit the episode one and episode three cliffhanger audio to more closely match the rhythm of the dialogue mm. but if you haven't checked out the recon do it new doctor it's who very to good. listen to mm. um I, won- no, ign- I wonder what other stories that might be the case
3: for we
0: yeah. mm. weiss, uh, weiss? Reese is <laughs> winking at the camera. <laughs> wait, wait, my rumour juice
1: Sorry, that was rambling and just get rid of all of that. Anyway
0: <laughs> Good. I'm gonna stop recording after
3: three hours thirty six.